Well, this is not intended to be the all Brennan all the time show. So this is about the Lord. This is about him. This is about his word. This is about lifting him up, learning from him and seeing our lives changed. And so with that in mind, let's go to him right now in prayer. Lord God, we come to you as your children because you've made it possible to do so. You've adopted us as your children. We get to be called your own. We get to be called your friends. We never earned that. We never will. We don't deserve it. But you made it so. Lord, we want this morning to be all about you. We don't want to be just comfortable in the routine of our Sunday mornings where we sing some songs, talk to some friends, shake some hands, and sit for a while and listen to a speaker. We don't want that, Lord. We don't want it to stop there. We want this morning to be about you, about who you are, and who you've made us to be. So we ask, Lord, that you would be in our midst in a special way, that you would be lifted up, that you would speak to hearts this morning, that your word would do its work in our lives. that we would be drawn into your presence in a special way, that we would understand how great and awesome a privilege it is to know you. So we give you this morning. We thank you for it. We thank you for Parkside. Thank you that we can be here. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, the price that he paid, the sacrifice that he made, for us so that we could know you so that we lost sinners dead in our trespasses and sins frankly enemies of you that people like that could be, be redeemed could be made new could be given new life to know you and to live for eternity worshiping you learning of you enjoying you so we pray for your special presence and for your word to be spoken this morning we pray in Jesus name amen open your bibles if you would to 1st John We're going to be in uh, chapter 1 and we're going to edge into chapter 2 today. First John, chapter 1, we're starting in verse 8 and we're going to continue through the end of chapter 2 and verse 2. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The hardest thing about getting people saved is first getting them lost. Before someone will see the value of the offer of salvation in Christ the Savior, they first have to see their need for a Savior, period. Christ gave himself as an offering for sin, but if we don't understand the presence and the extent and the offense of sin in our hearts, we won't understand how crucial his offering is for us. Jesus himself said that the person who is forgiven much loves much, and the person who is forgiven little loves little. So my question today is, do we love much or do we love little? Do we really recognize the presence and the gravity of sin in our lives? When we do recognize sin in our lives, do we know what to do with it? So John is talking here in 1 John about some lies about sin that had been circulating in his time. These false teachers that we've talked about had come in, they'd spread various lies, and they had some, some serious lies about sin, and those are what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what John has to say about sin and the Christian. So lie number one has to do with, are we sinful in nature? Are we sinful in nature? Lie number one is found there in the first part of verse eight. If we say we have no sin, that's lie number one. That lie is we don't even have a sin nature at all. Think about the people you know who are not your average church-going people. Maybe they don't go to church at all. What do they think about man? What do they think about mankind? Usually, people think that man is basically good. That's, that's the normal thought. They say, well, look at the great things we've accomplished. Look at all the hospitals and the wonderful charity works that happen. Look at how people rush to help victims in a time of devastation and dire need. People are basically decent if you just give them a chance. 
if you just give them a chance. Look at a little baby. How can you say anything bad about a little baby? They haven't done anything wrong. How can you say anything bad about them? At his core, man must be good. Or maybe, maybe they don't go that far. Maybe they don't go as far as to say that man is basically good. Maybe instead they say, well, at worst, man is basically neutral. He's a clean slate. He starts off neutral, and then it's the path of his life. It's the things that happen to him. It's the way he's parented. It's the bullies at school. It's the whatever that happens in his life that forms him into who he's going to be. He might be a good person. He might be a bad person. But it, at, at birth, he started off as a clean slate. And if you buy into the theory of evolution, that's really the only option you have, is that man is a morally neutral, neutral being. Because if we came from some primordial ooze and lightning struck it and stuff started happening and life was formed and we're the product zillions of years later, we must also be morally neutral because primordial ooze has to be morally neutral, right? So that's the result for us. We're blank slates. These are lies we hear all the time. If you talk to anyone about the basic nature of man, you will hear these things. And that's the way they sound today. They sounded a little bit differently in John's day. They sounded, they sounded uh, you know, they were culturally relevant. They were in his time. They were different. They weren't talking about evolution and they weren't talking about the things that we're talking about. But they were teaching this lie about sin. They were saying that for the spiritual man, sin is basically meaningless. It's actually meaningless. See, there's a division. There's a dichotomy between what is spirit and what is flesh, what is matter. And matter, that's sinful, but spirit is holy. And so since I'm a spiritual being, there's nothing of sin in me. That's just, just my body. That's just the flesh that I, that I have to live in because I'm, I'm alive at this time. But in me, there's no sin at all. That's the lie as it was heard then. Matter was evil. Spirit was good. Since they lived in the spiritual realm, since they were spiritual people, they didn't have any sin. They actually thought they were above sin. They thought that sin didn't have any really real connection with them personally at all so this is the first lie the lie that we don't have a sin nature what does the bible say about people who believe this what does it say about folks who buy into that yeah man is good man is good or uh, man's neutral he's a blank slate life forms. And what does man say? What does man have to say? What, is, what does God have to say about people who believe that? Well, let's, let's look at the results. Let's look at the assessment. And that's in the second half there of verse 8. First half, the lie was, we said we have no sin. We don't have sin. What's the assessment? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We're self-deceived, and we don't have anything to do with truth. Those are big words. You see, if, if we look into our lives, if we take a, a, 
a careful reckoning. If we examine our souls and we come to the conclusion that we are not sinful, we don't have sinful hearts, we're lying to ourselves. We are not being honest about what is there. We're lying to ourselves. Every one of us has mountains of evidence that we are sinful. In, all, in our lives, in our hearts, in our relationships with other people, there is plenty of evidence there that ought to convince us we are sinful people. The only reason that we wouldn't be convinced of our own sin according to what God says here is that we're self-deluded. We have deceived ourselves. And as if deceiving ourselves weren't bad enough, John also claims that if we think we have no sin nature, we don't have sin, we have nothing to do with sin, then we don't have the truth in us. We don't have the truth in us. Pilate asked Jesus famously one time, what's the most famous question from Pilate? What is truth? What is truth, Jesus? So what is it? That's a relevant question, especially in our age of relativism, of subjectivism. We define truth inside of ourselves you get to determine your own truth for you. That's the, that's the world we live in. That's the day and age we live in. That's what's taught. Determine it for yourself, what is true. So what is truth? What is truth? Think about that. Try and define that. What is truth? Truth is what corresponds with reality. It really is so. If I ask my daughter, is your room clean? There's only one true answer. I won't tell you which, which one that is, but... There's only one true answer because it either in reality is clean or in reality it's not clean. And if I'm going to make a true statement... That statement has to line up with reality, what is really the case. If we look inside of ourselves and we say we have no sin, what we are saying bears no resemblance to reality. It is untrue. We don't even see the truth. We are lying to ourselves. And this is, this is difficult, I think, for people to understand because the fact is we are not as bad as we could be. To say that we are utterly sinful confuses some people. They think that means that we're saying they are as bad as they could possibly be. And that's not what that means. Being utterly sinful, having a sin nature, doesn't mean you're as bad as you could possibly be. We're not all Hitler. So we're not as bad as we could possibly be. So what does it mean? What it means is examine any action that you do. Any action that you do. Somewhere in there, in your motivations, in your attitude, somewhere in there, there is selfishness, 
somewhere, or maybe pride, or maybe greed, or maybe envy, or maybe lust. In every action we do, there's something in there. That's what it means that we have a sin nature. That what it, that's what it means that we are utterly sinful. Not that we commit every sin possible. But that everything we do has a taint. A taint because of who we are has a taint of sin in it. We are utterly and deeply corrupted by sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is true about the Christian and sin? Well, truth number one. Verse 9 there, the first part of verse 9. If we confess our sins, confess our sins. We need to be honest with ourselves and with God about the presence and the existence of sin within us. Instead of denying the presence of sin in our hearts, we need to be forthcoming. We need to admit to ourselves, and vastly more importantly, we need to admit to God our own sin. We are sinful and rebellious. But confession isn't just admitting it. It doesn't stop there. It's when we seek forgiveness. We seek restoration in that relationship. That's real confession. It's confession with repentance. It's confession with sorrow that we've done that. That's confession. So we need to be honest with ourselves and with God about the existence of sin in us. That's truth number one. Let us be honest with ourselves and with the all-knowing God that we have a deep-seated rebellion against God and it taints every single decision that we make and every single action that we take. So what's the result? The second half of verse 9. He is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, He is Waiting there to pounce on us. Ah, I told you so. I told you so. I knew it. I knew it. He's not waiting for that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is huge. Now, some of you may know, I like grammar. I'm a grammar guy. I don't know why, but I like it. Probably because of my great English teachers, most of whom are represented here. Many of whom are represented here. I love grammar. And this is, one of, this is one of the passages, this is one of the verses where it is so neat to be able to, to look at the Greek and see what the Greek grammar says. Because in English it just kind of flows, it's a regular old sentence, kind of humdrum. You can read over it and not get struck by it. But in the Greek it's different. The Greek says, if we confess our sins, faithful he is. And righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word faithful almost crowds out the comma. It is so neat. He barely finished writing. 
if we confess our sins before faithful starts jumping off the pen. Faithful, faithful, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Grammar is so cool. (laughs) Study grammar, it's cool. Sorry, sound guys. (laughs) It's awesome. There's something else very clear that I won't yell about from the grammar here. (laughs) The New American Standard translates this better. I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version right now. And I'm, I'm bummed at the way they translated this. They said, he is faithful and just, just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I like the New American Standard better. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. There's a huge contrast there in the Greek that's not there in my ESV that I'm sad about. There's a huge contrast between us and our unrighteousness and him and his vast, infinite, perfect, pure righteousness. And somehow he sees fit the righteous God, the holy God who is unapproachable, dwells in unapproachable light. We would burn up in an instant if we ever tried to get to him in our sin because we are unrighteous. And somehow he forgives us our being diametrically opposed and at enmity with him. That's what our sin is. I don't want you, God. I don't want you, God. I want what I want. I'll be my own Lord, thank you. I don't want you to be my Lord. That's what sin is. And when we commit sin, even as believers, that's what we're saying. I know what you say, God. I know what you want. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. I have a better way. I like my way better. Feels better. Looks better. It's easier. Less painful. That's what sin is. It's our rebellion against him. And somehow he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 7. It's not a new idea. Whereas Satan's lie that we don't really have sin leaves us self-deluded and without truth in our lives, the truth that we do have sin but can confess it to God and find forgiveness from the guilt of our sin and be cleansed of the stain of our sin leaves us at peace with him and washed clean by the blood of Jesus' sacrifice for us. We who were dirty and far off are brought near to him in fellowship. So we have sin, but forgiveness is ours for the asking. There's another area 
that there were lies being spread in. Are we sinful in action? We've already talked about being sinful in nature. Are we sinful in action? And that lie is found in the first part of verse 10. If we say we have not sinned. Now, to most of us, that sounds rather strange. To say you've not sinned. That sounds kind of strange. I've only actually literally met one person who said, no, not ever, not once, not in any way ever in my entire life did I ever sin. I've only met one guy. And it wasn't Jesus. (laughs) So lie number two is that sin does not show up in our actions. It's very similar to the first lie, but the difference is subtle. Here, the lie sounds something like this. Maybe we do have a sinful nature. Maybe there's a part of me just about, because I'm a human, it just comes from being human, that I have a sinful nature. I'm just weak. But I haven't really done anything really wrong in my life. After all, I haven't murdered anyone. That's usually the next sentence. I haven't murdered anyone or anything. I haven't really done sin at least nothing really important there's there's no sin in my life i haven't done sin and that's because most people think they're a good person if you ask people are you a good person inevitably the answer will be yeah and if they say no i'm not then you've got a wide open door for the gospel right there why do people tend to think that they're a good person you ever thought about that? Why, why do they think that? Don't they, don't they see? Don't they know? Well, the reason I think it is, is because we tend to judge ourselves based upon our motives. Oh, I'm, I meant to do something good. I, was, I wasn't trying to do that. I wasn't really trying to say those harsh words. I wasn't trying to. The motive is what's important when I'm talking about me. Now, that guy, who cares what his motives were? You see what he did. What he did is important. So we give ourselves every benefit of the doubt. We judge ourselves by our motives. Oh, I didn't mean that. I meant good things. But we judge other people by their actions. I don't care what his motives were. You see what he did? You see what he did? And so we come off looking like the good guy. Makes us feel good about ourselves, right? I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. So there are those who think that they've not sinned. Maybe a capital S sin or a something like that. They think they've not done that. They're they're a good person. What do you think God's going to say about that? And that's the result. That's the assessment that John gives. It's the second half of verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. We are calling God a liar. And his word isn't in us if we say we've not sinned. Well, why does he say we're calling God a liar? How are we making God a liar? How is that? Well, the Bible, again and again, not just in Romans 3.23, says that sin is universal. We have all committed it. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 
There's no one who does not sin. 1 Kings 8.46 They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. That was Psalm 14.3. Here's a familiar one, Isaiah 53.6 We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. All and each Every, you and me. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. We all, everyone. To say we've not sinned when God's testimony in the Bible, is that we are all sinners, is to spit on God's testimony and to call him a liar. Obviously, his word has no part in us if we believe something so radically opposed to the message of all of Scripture. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Twice now, John has forcefully argued that even Christians do indeed sin. It's a lie to say otherwise. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't call God a liar. So, the question arises. Are we stuck in our sins? Are we stuck with our sins? And here, I kind of hear an unspoken objection. Those of you who know Romans 6.1 seems to be very similar. Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound. John, you've been pointing out the necessity of admitting our sin, of saying there's sin. These people were saying, seem to be saying they were holier people, and you're saying, nope, sin. There's presence of sin. Sin is here. You have sin in your life. Well, okay, John, if we're supposed to confess it, and these other people are liars, are we just supposed to go on sinning? Just keep on sinning that grace may abound? If it's a fact that every believer will have sin in his life at one point or another, both the taint of the sin nature and the actual commission of the sins in his life, then what are we to do? See, John's been arguing kind of a paradox. It seems strange. Admitting that we have sins means that the truth is in us. Saying we don't have sins means that there is actually no truth whatsoever in us. It's a paradox. It's counterintuitive. So are we to revel in sin since it's going to happen anyway? What's his answer? First part of verse 1 there, chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Their question was, so are we to continue in sin? That's an unspoken question. Are we just supposed to keep doing it? So what's the deal with us if we've got sin in our lives? Does that mean just go with it the rest of your life? He says, my little children, I wrote to you. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. No, I don't want you to continue in sin. God's giving us the entire letter here of 1 John, and in fact, the entire Bible 
so that we may not sin. Because the fact is, it's there in us anyway. And he wants us to learn not to sin. So he means something different. resounding testimony of scripture and an honest assessment of our own lives tells us that in fact we do sin sometimes so let's admit this fact and get it out on the table even faithful believers in jesus christ will sometimes sin what are we to do about that what are we to do with that well let's look at the result The end of verse 1 there and through verse 2. I'll just read verse 1 in its entirety. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The result is we have an advocate. He's righteous, and he's our propitiation. Jesus is our righteous advocate and propitiation. Now, lots of words in there. I know we don't use them a lot. Propitiation, we don't, you know, I'm not sure it's in my, if I try and text that, I don't think it's going to come up as a word. Propitiation. So, what do they mean? What is, let's start with advocate. What's an advocate? The idea of an advocate here is someone who is pleading our case pleading our case sort of like an attorney not exactly but he's up there he takes up our cause before god and he pleads our case you know john is the only new testament writer who uses this word that's translated here as advocate it's translated in john the gospel as helper for uh, chapter 14 15 and 16 of the gospel of john he uses this but there he uses the same exact word It's Jesus talking, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to go away. There's going to be a time when I go away, but it's good for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, then I can't send the advocate. I can't send the helper. I can't send the Holy Spirit to be with you. So it's good for you that I go away, and I'm going to send this helper to be in your life. He says... I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So that is this word helper in the Gospel of John. Here he's using the identical word, but he means something different. It's not translated helper. It's translated here as advocate. Someone who is taking our case. He's helping us for sure but in God's presence. He's arguing our case. And it says here, not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the advocate. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He pleads our case. He argues our cause before a righteous judge who has been legitimately offended. He's been offended. He's our advocate. Next it says... He's called uh, righteous, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, he, he wouldn't be a very effective advocate if he walked into the judge's presence and got arrested himself for his own offenses. 
if he's trying to argue our case, he himself better be righteous. And it says that he is. He doesn't have his own offenses against God. He himself is perfectly righteous. If he himself were guilty, he would never have a credible argument for our cause before an offended God. But since everything about him lines up perfectly with God's character and with God's nature, he is righteous. There is no blame, blot, or blemish in him. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is our advocate before the Father. But we have propitiation. We have propitiation. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the whole world. He's the propitiation. What in the world does that word mean? What in the world does that word mean? We'd never use that word. Well, here's the idea. The idea of propitiation. The idea is that God himself, who is righteous and holy, has been offended by us, by our rebellion, by our sin, by our refusal and denial of his lordship. Denial of his status, even as creator. We have offended him. And because of our offense against him, he is wrathful. He has wrath and anger, legitimately so, against us. He is righteous. He is our creator. We owe everything to him. All of our allegiance, all of our lives, all of our thoughts, all of our words, everything about us. But instead, what do we do? What do we do? We rebel against him in our thoughts. I'm going to think the way I want to think. We deny that he's the creator. We go against every one of those things that we owe him. We do the exact opposite. And the result in him is a burning rage. It's wrath. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. He's been offended. And it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What that means is Jesus took it upon himself to make an offering to God to appease that wrath that he had for us. God was angry, deservedly so with us, with our sin because of our rebellion and our hatred of him. And Jesus took it upon himself to pay that penalty, to appease that wrath, to make an offering such that God's wrath no longer burns against us. No longer burns against us. That's a huge offer. Jesus is a propitiation of our sins. And not, not just for us, but it's offered freely to the whole world. It's offered to them. Does that mean that uh, an eminent pastor and author of the day is right, that hell doesn't really exist? Is that what that means? It's not what that means. God is still a righteous judge. And only those who have the blood of Jesus applied to the sins in their lives, applied to their hearts, receive that propitiation. Only those who receive Christ received that gift and only for those people is the wrath of god averted from them and poured out onto jesus instead so rob bell's wrong if he's saying 
there is no hell. He's wrong. He's missed the point. He's missed the point. Propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. The Father's provision for the sinning Christian is in His Son, who possesses a threefold qualification his righteous character, his propitiatory death, and his heavenly advocacy. And each depends on the others. You can't pick and choose. He could not be our advocate in heaven today if he had not died to be the propitiation for our sins. And his propitiation would not have been effective if in his life and character he had not been Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what's the personal application? How do we deal with sin? What's our relationship to sin? What's our attitude to sin? Well, we have a couple options. We can either deny that we have sin in our hearts or that there's any in our behavior. God says if we take that position, we deceive ourselves. We call him a liar. The truth is not in us and his word is not in us. Or, second option, we can confess our sins before God and have forgiveness and cleansing because of the wonderful work of our heavenly advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who sacrificed his very life in order to appease the wrath of God that was so justly leveled against you and against me. That's the route I want to take. That's the option I want to take. It's there for the asking. Forgiveness is there for the asking. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a heavy subject. We don't often like to talk about sin. We don't like to admit it in our own lives. We don't like to see it in our own lives. Thank you for John who dealt with it. Thank you that you gave us your word, that you talk here about the truth that in fact we do have a sinful nature. We do in fact have sin in our actions. And left to ourselves, we are completely deserving of judgment, eternal judgment from God. But thank you for Jesus who offered himself as our propitiation to appease the wrath of a holy God against us. Thank you for his present advocacy that he's in heaven right now pleading our case before you and that he has every right to do so and all the credentials to do so. Thank you that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous I pray that we would lift him up the rest of our day in our conversation. May you be honored. May you be glorified. Bless us as we go out, Lord. Help us to think about these things and not forget. Not just forget and start to treat sin lightly as if it were just another part of being human. It's an offense against you. It is enmity towards you. It is unbelief in our lives. 
It is choosing to do what I want to do instead of what you say to do. May we not forget, Lord. Father, as we go out, we want to be conscious of sin. But it's not our goal. It's not our main focus. Christ is our main focus. We want to be conscious of sin so that we keep clean our communication with you. So that our relationship, our fellowship with you is unhindered. So that our relationships and fellowship with believers around us, other people around us, our families, is not hindered by sin. But ultimately, Lord, it serves to make us more grateful for the offering that Jesus made on our behalf. May we go with that thought, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.